series called Building Solid Rock. And I'm talking about how I need your help to accomplish the vision that God has put inside of our heart. Our scripture, our opening scripture is the scripture God gave me when we started the church. It's on the t-shirts over there as well. Matthew 7, 25. I want you to read it good and strong. Ready, go. Rain, Rain fell, floods came, and wind blew against the house. But it did not fall because it was built upon the solid rock. We are building solid rock on the solid rock. Amen? Okay, today in part three, I want to talk to you about this. Every gift matters. Every single gift matters. Not only are very wealthy people in our church giving tens of thousands of dollars, but single parents and teenagers and children are bringing their allowance and putting it in the building fund. Here's why every single gift matters. Whenever we're raising a million dollars for something, it seems like, you know what, my sacrifice of $100 isn't going to do much, or my $500 or my $20 is not really going to put a dent in things. But it's not about how much money you give. It's about how much you're willing to sacrifice and put in the hands of God. If your sacrifice is $50 in the hands of God, it can turn into $50 million. God will provide whatever it is we need if we will simply give him the seed that we possess in our life right now. Um, one of the reasons that people commit suicide and one of the reasons that former military commit suicide is because they think their life doesn't matter. They get to a point where they think, if I left this earth, would anybody care? If I stopped going to church, would anybody notice? Um, in the military, they had the camaraderie of their friends and they're on the front line and they're fighting for something they believe in and they're ready to surrender their life for our freedom. And then when they retire from that, they think, man, what's my life worth? What am I doing? I just go to work. I just go to church. I just say, what, what, does my life matter at all? So I'm going to prove to you scientifically and biblically that every single thing we do matters. Um, there was a doctoral thesis written in 1963 by Edward Lorenz called The Butterfly Effect. Uh, the butterfly effect was presented to the New York Academy of Science, and he was laughed out of the place in the 60s. I mean, laughed out of the place. Uh, the butterfly effect says that a butterfly can flap its wings over in Eastern Europe, and it can set a, 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 some molecules of air into motion that somehow can affect the weather patterns over in North America. Think about it, a butterfly can flap its wings way over here in Australia, Europe, somewhere, and the, the wind from the butterfly's wings you know, blows against a flower and pollen falls on the ground and the bee takes the pollen from the ground and takes it over to this tree and on and on the thing goes until the point where a hurricane in North America can be affected by it. Of course he was laughed out of the place, right? Well, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, the butterfly effect ended up in really bad movies, in comic books, in myth and legend, until the early 1990s when a group of physics professors proved that it was 100% accurate. It was viable and it works every single time. It was given the status of a law. The law is called the law of sensitive dependence upon initial conditions. And what the law of sensitive dependence upon initial conditions states is that any moving piece of matter affects every single piece of matter. Any moving piece of matter affects every single piece of matter. And the thing about laws is they're true whether you believe them or not. The law of sowing and reaping, you get what you give, you are today based on what you sowed in the past. It's true whether you like it or not or believe it or not. The law of gravity, you can be a disbeliever in gravity, but if I take you up in a plane, open up the door, and kick you out with no parachute, you're going to believe very quickly in the law of gravity. 
Well, the law of sensitive dependence upon initial conditions doesn't just work with butterflies. It actually works with people as well. Every single thing we do affects every single thing around us. Let me just give you a crazy quick example I thought of. Let's say that a little girl 300 and something years ago decides to plant a seed in the ground. A redwood tree seed, a sequoia seed. You know the biggest trees in the world? They're over in Oregon, Washington State. The little girl plants the seed and she waters it, makes sure it grows. And 300 years later, you have this huge redwood tree shooting up in the sky. Some guy gets paid to come and cut down the redwood tree. Another person gets paid to turn it into furniture. Another person gets paid to pick it up and go sell it somewhere. Those people that got paid, if they're members of a church and they're faithful tithers, then 10% of what they got paid goes into the kingdom of God and that gets built. Somebody buys the piece of furniture, maybe a new, newlywed couple, they get married, they're trying to you know, put furniture in their house. So they buy this piece of furniture, they carve their name somewhere in it just for fun. They pass it down to their children, who passes it down to their children, and each generation is carving their name somewhere in the furniture. And then one day, four or five generations later the newlyweds of course they are given this heirloom that now has sentimental value and about a year through their marriage they're having a tough time and they feel like they're going to go through a divorce it gets really bad they're fighting horribly somebody gets the divorce papers and they come into the house and they throw it down on that particular piece of furniture then all of a sudden when they think about that furniture and they see the initials of their grandparents and great-grandparents and great-grandparents on there something inside of them says you know what we need to make this marriage work you know what we need jesus and they start going to church somewhere. And then the couple gets saved and they stay together and have a great marriage. And then they have children. And one of their children is in church every Sunday, grows up and becomes a pastor. And then that child that grew up and became a pastor in his ministry, he leads over 5,000 people to Jesus. Now there's 5,000 people in heaven because one little girl planted a redwood tree seed 350 years ago. So do you see how, I just made that up, but I'm just saying that didn't really, it'd be really cool if that was one of us. But do you see how every single thing we do matters? Um, if planting a seed can affect the entire world, then what happens when you withhold your seed? What happens when you don't release the things that God's given you? Now, if this law works with butterflies and weather, how much more will it work if you and I, as children of God, obey what God says in life and give to build his kingdom? What will that do to the entire world? I have three points for you today on every gift matters. Point number one is this. Give whatever you have. We have people giving Legos, land, silver, Rolex. There was a lady that visited our church last Sunday from up north, and um, she's a famous children's book writer. And so she called us. She said, I believe in what you're doing, and I'm going to send you a bunch of free children's books that you can give to people who donate to your building fund. You give whatever you have. So Jesus one day was teaching all day long. It was probably his longest sermon ever. And at the end of it, he wanted to feed everybody who he was talking to. Now, the Bible says that there were 5,000 men there, but what most theologians believe is there were actually 20,000 people there because they did not count the women and children. So imagine, you know, Jesus is preaching and, and he says, I want to feed everybody. And the disciples say, well, we got 5,000 men. And Jesus says, well, what about the women? And, well, they can eat the leftovers, you know. What about the children? They can eat the leftovers of the leftovers. You know, we got to take care of the men. And so the Bible says in Luke 9, 13, the disciples said to Jesus, there's a boy here with five loaves of bread and two fish, but that will certainly not be enough for 5,000 men. I want you to see that Jesus wanted to do something for the entire church, and the male leaders of the church said, we don't have enough to do what you wanna do. It is so funny to me, if you study the faith between men and women all through the Bible, uh, the difference is unbelievable. Remember when Jesus died on the cross, they put his body in the tomb? Uh, you know where the men were, right? They were hiding in a locked room behind closed doors, afraid of the soldiers. You know where the women were? 
They were working down there at the tomb, telling the soldiers, move out of the way so we can get his body and anoint it, right? I'm sure one of the men had a head cold. And the women, the women probably had, you know, leprosy. Um, they probably had coronavirus, the flu, eight months pregnant. They're like, we got to get out there and work. We got stuff that needs to be done. The men have a headache. Let them stay inside, you know. But it's so funny. So Jesus asked his male leaders, we, we need some food. They said, well, it's not enough. And they went to a boy, which is so funny because he wasn't even counted in the story. He wasn't even counted. They were talking about the men. They didn't even count the children. Hey, we're trying to raise a million dollars. Let's get all the very wealthy people of the church. They're the ones that need to give. Yeah, but what about the children? That You know, the children can make even more of a difference. They didn't go to any of the wealthy people in the crowd. They didn't go to any of the men. It was the little boy who wasn't even counted in the story that had what Jesus needed to do, what Jesus wanted to do. And so they go to the little boy, and I can just picture Jesus looking at him and, and saying, son, what do you have there? The boy says, well, my mom told me that you were a long-winded speaker. And so on the way to church, she took me through McDonald's and she got me a Happy Meal and she dropped me off and just said, you know, if you get hungry, here's your food. All I have is a Happy Meal. And Jesus looks at the little boy and says, will you give it to me? Will, will you give me what you have? Will you sacrifice your lunch? Will you give me what you have? Now, in, in all of our finances, I'm sure we've all experienced subtraction. That's whenever you look at your phone and you realize, man, I thought I had more money in the bank than I do. We've all experienced subtraction. Now, if you're a hard worker, you're diligent, you've experienced addition. That's where you get paid and you're like, oh man, I'm so glad I got paid today. You know, If you're ever gonna experience multiplication, you have to put what you have in the hands of God. And Jesus looks at the boy and says, okay, I'll, I'll take what you have. The Bible says that Jesus blessed it and broke it before it multiplied. Now, there's a side sermon there. If you're ever going to be blessed, you have to be broken. You have to get to the point where you realize you're nothing without Jesus. Once you're broken, you'll be blessed. And then multiplication occurred in the hands of the men who said, we don't have enough. It was like Jesus was saying, I'm going to show you I'm more than enough. I'm going to show it to you. And so they took what he had. He multiplied it, and in verse 17, it says, when they were all full, Jesus told the disciples to gather the leftovers. They filled 12 large baskets. I can picture Jesus looking at all 12 disciples who said, we don't have enough, and said, each one of y'all pick up a basket. Follow me. They follow the little boy home. Now, we don't know this. This is my imagination. They follow the little boy home. Jesus has the disciples lay out all 12 baskets on the front porch. He waves goodbye to the child. The boy runs inside and says, mom, I got to show you something. She comes out at the front porch and says, honey, where did all this food come from? You know that Happy Meal? I gave it to Jesus, the whole thing. And we have 12 large baskets filled after we're done. Listen, if you will give what you do have, then God will give you what it is you don't have in life. Whenever you plant a seed, let me ask an agricultural question. When you plant a seed, do you get um, one piece of fruit or do you get a tree? You get a tree, right? If you plant a peach seed, what do you get? A peach tree. And what does the peach tree have on it? It has peaches, plural, okay, plural. One little boy flapped his butterfly wings and 20,000 people were changed. 20,000 people were affected by one little boy's gift. Stop looking at somebody else to sacrifice and do your part. 
If you will take what you have and put it in the hands of God, he can multiply and provide what it is we need. Anytime there's a need, it's because somebody is withholding a seed in their life. Anytime there's a need in a family, it's because somebody is withholding a seed. You know, whenever God went to Moses, Moses didn't have any experience. He didn't have any money. He didn't have a book on how to deliver two million people from Israel, from, from Egypt, for dummies. He didn't have anything like that. All he had was in Exodus 4-2, the Lord said, Moses, what do you have in your hand? All he had was a stick. That's it. It wasn't a fancy stick. It didn't have jewels on it. It wasn't made of marble. It was a walking stick. He said, God, all I have, all I have is a stick. And here's what God said. Let go of it. Release it. Throw it on the ground. When he did that, it turned into a snake. When Moses picked it up, it turned back into a stick. Then whenever he went to the Red Sea, what did God say? Hold the stick in the air. He held it in the air and it turned into a Red Sea parting machine. God was saying, if you'll release what you have in your hand, I'll become whatever you need. If you need a microphone to speak to two million people, I'll turn it into a microphone to speak to many people. If you need a cancer-free report, I'll turn it into a cancer-free report. If you need a spouse, if you need a friend, if you need a new job, if you'll release your seed, then God will release your harvest. Whatever you have in your hand, release it to God, and he'll provide whatever it is that we need. Samson in Judges 15 he was the strongest man who ever lived. He had supernatural strength. But one day, a thousand Philistines were coming after him. Now, you've heard the phrase outnumbered 100 to 1. He was literally outnumbered 1,000 to 1. He didn't have any troops. He didn't have an armor. He didn't have a sword. He didn't have a slingshot. He looked around. He couldn't find his grenades. No AK-47. The Bible says in Judges 15, 15, he spotted the jawbone of a donkey. And he stepped out and used that to kill a thousand men. He took something ordinary and put it in the hands of God. And God turned it into something extraordinary. You say, well, John Paul, I don't have enough. I don't, I don't have enough to give. I don't have enough to do what needs to be done. Then you're exactly where Jesus and his disciples were. They did not have enough. But somebody gave a seed and the seed turned into a tree and the tree turned into tons of fruit and 5,000 to 20,000 people got fed because of one little boy's gift. Every gift matters. Every single gift. Point number two is this. Give behind the scenes. Um, don't be one of those people that loves to give and then brag on what it is they did. <laughs> um, I'm going to say something. I, I didn't know if this was good enough to put on the screen or not. Because sometimes I know God gives me things and then sometimes I think of things and sometimes I don't know which is which. So I'm going to say it and if it's good, maybe we'll put it on the screen for second service. I don't know. But here's what I thought of. Don't give to feel good. Give to feel God. You know, sometimes we give and we just sit back and think, man, I really sacrificed. Oh, I am such a good person. Oh, I just feel so good about myself. Yep, that's right. I gave all that money and... Man, I just really, I did so good. I am such a great giver. We should never give to feel good. We should always give just to feel God look at us and say, thank you. Thank you for just putting it in my hands. Thank you for trusting me with that gift. Thank you for sacrificing for my kingdom. Don't give to feel good. Give to feel God. In other words, we weren't called to always eat our own fruit. And, and, and show everybody the tree that we have. Sometimes we plant a seed and somebody, somebody else eats our fruit. 
And that's okay, even though you want to shoot them in the leg. But it's okay if somebody else eats your fruit sometimes. It's okay. We weren't called to eat our own fruit all the time. We were just called to sow seeds. Matthew 6, 1 says, Be careful not to do your good deeds publicly to be seen by men. Otherwise, you will have no reward. It's okay to do good deeds publicly. It's okay. It's just not okay to do it with the motive of, I want everybody to see how great I am. That's not okay. Sometimes giving behind the scenes that nobody knows about are the best rewarded gifts of all time. Uh, one time in the Old Testament, next is chapter 17, uh, the Israelites were fighting in a battle against an evil group called the Amalekites. It was a horrible battle. It was two million Israelites and probably two to four million of Amalek's team. And, and the battle was going on and on and on. But the Bible says in Exodus 17, 13, that Joshua totally defeated the Amalekites. Woo! Yay! Right, Joshua? Jo really, in, in, in reality, two million people defeated the Amalekites. But Joshua gets the credit. Yay! Because Joshua was the pastor. And everybody sees Joshua. Yay, Joshua. And, and the Bible even says Joshua defeated them. Yay, Joshua. There were two million people doing the work, but Joshua was in charge. Yay, right? What Joshua and the two million people did not know was there was a mountain over on the side of them with old man Moses watching everything take place. Moses was retired. Joshua was in charge. But Moses is sitting up on the mountain. And Moses and God had a pact that nobody knew about. And it said this in verse 11, when Moses held up his arms, Israel prevailed. When he lowered his arms, Amalek prevailed. Little did they know the whole time they're out there fighting with Joshua, yay, that when Moses was up on the mountain holding his hands in the air, that's when Joshua and two million people were winning because there's an old man on the side of the mountain lifting his hand. Now, you know, if you're old, that it takes a lot of effort to hold your hands in the air, right? I'm 42. Sometimes during praise and worship, my arms get tired and I got to switch arms sometimes, you know. This battle didn't last during one song. This battle was lasting for hour after hour after hour. Luckily, there were two more old guys up there. In verse 12, it says, So Aaron and Hur held up Moses' hands, one on each side, until Amalek was defeated. And then Joshua totally, yay, defeated the Amalekites. Three old guys. See, they thought they were moving to Myrtle Beach to retire. They thought they were going to play golf and enjoy the weather. Little did they know when they met Joshua at Solid Rock, he was going to give them something to do every other day. They're retired. They're not out there on the battle lines. They're not up front fighting the war. But little did two million people know because three men behind the scenes were doing their little part. Their little gift, something that no one thought would do anything, just holding their hands in the air. Because of that, Joshua and two million people won the battle. <laughs> Life is not always about being up front. Sometimes behind the scenes is the best. John 15, 16, I chose you and I put you in the world to produce fruit. Whether you get to show everybody what you've done or not, just produce it. Just give it. Just sow the seeds. Um... In 2015, uh, we had just moved into this building and um, I was working 60 to 80 hours a week trying to build a church. And, and, and my only goal in life was to make sure everybody liked me. That's all I wanted. I was incredibly insecure, incredibly insecure. And I wanted more than anything forever. So I would answer every phone call and I'd, I'd, I'd jump on every whim and 
What anybody wanted, I would do as long as it made them happy. Obviously, I've changed a lot because I don't give a crap what any of y'all think now. But back then, I really cared a lot about that. So it was just a very bad year. And on top of that, I had a moral failure. And I thought the way to get through it was to announce to the world my failure and, you know, what I did wrong. I thought that would, you know, make everything great. And I thought that all my Christian friends would, you know, um, rise up around me and help me be restored. And I thought they would want my marriage to, you know, get better and all this kind of stuff. But it was the opposite. It was the opposite. I mean, everybody walked out on me, but about 12 people. And those 12 are still part of our church, too, from uh, Laverne, Betty, Erica, uh, Tricia, uh, I mean, just a bunch of, bunch of great people, about a dozen people, the Lehmans. And so, um, man, I lost everything. I mean, I lost everything. I was getting hate mail every single day from, from hundreds of people, pastors all over. You know, you're going to hell. What's wrong with you? And all just, it was just horrible stuff. I was in counseling three times a week. Um, I had people in church that were giving my ex-wife money for a divorce lawyer. I mean, it was just everything you can imagine. And so I was done with church. I already just had a little bad taste in my mouth with Christians before. Now I really hated Christians because they're two-faced, they're hypocrites, and I hated all of them. So my bishop came and took over, and the church kind of died down to nothing. And I left ministry. And uh, the first place I went when I left is I went to a nightclub. Because, of course, that's what pastors do whenever they fall. They go to a nightclub. And uh, my friend Mark, we were not friends at the time. We had known each other for about 30 years, but we were just acquaintances. I had spent 10 years texting and calling Mark every Saturday night for about a decade, asking him to come to church, to which he would usually ignore my calls. His parents spent about 20 years. Um, since I was about 18 years old, I had three men that I'd prayed for my whole life, and Mark was one of them. And so I went to the nightclub and I said, um, I said, man, I need a job. I need a job because I'm quitting ministry. I'm done with church. I said, I need you to find me a job playing music somewhere because you know, you know everybody. And we were in the nightclub and he said, what, what do you mean quit? What are you talking about quitting? I said, well, I had a failure. He said, what did you do? I told him what I did in his first words. He said, that's nothing, man. That's no big deal at all. What are you doing quitting ministry? I said, well, I have nothing left. I have nothing. I have nobody. I said, the whole world hates me. I lost everything. I don't have a place to live. I don't have my family. I have nothing. And then Mark said, <clears throat> Mark said, he said a sentence that forever changed my life. He said, if you'll go back and preach, then I'll come to church every Sunday and do the music for you. And for the first two years, for 2016 and 2017, he was here every Sunday. He'd get off work at 2, 3 a.m. in the morning on Saturday night and come to church for practice and do the music. Now, you're thinking, well, that's not really that big of a deal. He just, well, I want you to hear this. He did it when I had nothing. He did it when no one liked me and no one wanted me. He did it when I didn't have my anointing. He did it when he had no idea if I was ever going to be able to preach again. He did it not knowing that in five years the city of Myrtle Beach would give us an award for the best place of worship in 2021. He did it not knowing we'd grow in COVID. He did it not knowing there'd be two full services and nine acres of a canvas to look forward to. He did it when there was nothing and no reason to do it. He did it when nobody thought I was popular. Nobody wanted me. Everybody hated me. That's when he sowed the seed. And you know, I think about all the lives that have been touched at Solid Rock and will continue to be touched for generation to generation, for the next several decades. And as I was writing this sermon, I kind of had this fantasy of Mark and I dying on the same day. Now, most likely he's going to die a lot sooner than me. But let's say 50 years from now, we die on the same day. 
And because I'm very impatient, I probably run up ahead of them as soon as we get to heaven, you know. And there's these hundreds of thousands of people whose lives have been touched through solid rock over the years. And I'm so excited to greet them. My hands are open. I just can't wait to give them all a hug. And as they come running toward me, I can feel the wind of them running by me to the nightclub owner 20 feet back, thanking him for doing what he did to help me get back where God wanted me to be. <laughs> See? You may never, you'll, you'll never, you'll never see Mark up here preaching, but every time I'm up here, I'm up here because of him and what he did behind the scenes. Now, you can't go back in time and, and, and find me in 2016 and say, oh, John Paul, I love you. You, know, you can't go back in time and do that. But you know what you can do? You can support it now. It looks like we're going to have a pretty stinking good future. It looks like this is a good place to invest. Now, even though the scripture has nothing to do with the sermon, I want to read it just because I love it. Galatians 6.1. If anyone is caught in any sin, you who are spiritually mature are to restore such a person in a spirit of gentleness, not with a sense of self-righteousness. That's actually what the Bible says, just so you know. Okay, point number three is this. Your gift can affect millions. Your gift can affect millions. Genesis 1 Verse 11, and this is in creation. God said, let the earth produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with the seed in it, and it was so. I want to just give you something to think about for a second, and that is this. Um, every single peach that you eat, it originated 6,000 years ago. Every peach tree originated 6,000. Let me say this. Do you know that God only created two people? That's it. He didn't create you. He didn't create me. He created two people. We came from his creation because one of them had a seed. We all came from Adam and Eve. You know that? Every single peach that you will ever eat the rest of your life came from this time in the Garden of Eden around in Genesis chapter 1, 6,000 years ago. You know why? Because they have a seed in it. Imagine if in Genesis chapter 1, those first people, imagine if every time they ate a peach, they threw away the seed and did not plant anything. We wouldn't have any peaches. We have peaches because someone planted seeds, right? And now the whole world has peaches because the seeds just keep on going into the ground. You were never created to withhold your seed. Never. But one seed from one tree can produce dozens of fruit, can produce dozens of trees, can produce hundreds of fruit, can produce hundreds of trees, can produce thousands of fruit, can produce thousands of trees, and on and on it goes. 2 Timothy 3, 2 says, in the last days people will be selfish and self-absorbed. Don't fall into the category of withholding your gift. Every single gift matters. You have no idea what one sentence can do to somebody's life. You have no idea how many people can be affected by one seed. And I want to just tell you a story in closing. So many, many years ago in the 90s, there was a, a television show called ABC's Person of the Week. I think it was when Peter Jennings was alive. And they would take somebody famous who did something great at some point in history, and they'd give them this, you know, title, Person of the Week Award with ABC, right? Well, this particular night, ABC's Person of the Week went to a man named Norman Borlaug. Norman Borlaug in the 1940s, he found a way to um, hybridize wheat in arid climates. He found a way to cause wheat to grow in times of famine. 
He would work at an agricultural company and with all of his research and all of his intelligence and all the people helping him, he found a way for wheat to grow whenever there was no rain and no moisture in the air. And they, they figured out because of what he did in the 40s, it saved the lives of two billion people. In fact, some of y'all don't even know it, but you are here because in the 40s, he found a way to, call, to help people all around the world have food whenever there was famine. And because he saved the lives of two billion people, he got a Nobel Peace Prize and ABC's Person of the Week. But I studied Norman Borlaug, and I don't think that he deserves ABC's Person of the Week. I think it should go to a man named Henry Wallace. Henry Wallace was the vice president uh, for Roosevelt. I think when two of his terms, Roosevelt also had Truman, I think it was, but one of his vice presidents was definitely Henry Wallace. Henry Wallace, before he became vice president, he was secretary of agriculture. And Henry Wallace had a passion for plants and botany and what it could do for mankind. So once Henry Wallace became the vice president, he used his position, his influence, and his money to start a station in Mexico whose sole purpose was to find out how to hybridize wheat in arid climates. He put all kind of money into that station. He put researchers there. And he needed somebody to run it who had the same passion as him. So Henry Wallace hired Norman Borlaug, sent him to Mexico. And because everything was already there for him, it just took a few years for Norman Borlaug to figure out a way to hybridize wheat in arid climates. He saved the lives of 2 billion people, got a Nobel Peace Prize, and ABC's Person of the Week. But it's because Henry Wallace hired him. But if you know the story of Henry Wallace, you know it didn't start with him. It actually started with a man named George Washington Carver. Y'all know George Washington Carver? He's the African-American young guy, very intelligent. He created all. He found 266 ways to use the peanut that we still use today, 88 ways to use the sweet potato. When George Washington Carver was in college, he was studying botany. He was 19 years old. He had a professor who really loved him and trusted him so much so this professor would send his six-year-old boy on botanical expeditions with George Washington Carver on the weekends. George Washington Carver poured in and babysat a six-year-old boy who later turned seven and then eight. Every year while he was in college, he was taking this kid on all these botanical expeditions, teaching him about plants and pointing his heart in the area of a passion of what plants could do for mankind. The little boy was Henry Wallace. Henry Wallace grew up, started the agricultural company in Mexico, and he hired Norman Borlaug, who saved the lives of two billion people, got a Nobel Peace Prize, and ABC's Person of the Week. But if you know George Washington Carver, then you might have heard of one of his parents. His name was Moses. Moses was actually a farmer in Diamond, Missouri. And at that time, it was a huge slave state. Moses was a white guy. And Moses did not believe in slavery at all. So he, would have, he had this big barn behind his farm. And he would allow African Americans to live inside of his barn. He would protect them, clothe them, feed them, give them work, and try to keep them away from all the people that were crazy out there. Until one night, cold January night, a group of men called Quantrell's Raiders came through Moses' farm. It was like the KKK on steroids. They had torches in their hand. They burnt down the barn. They shot and killed every person they could see. And they tied up with a rope a young woman named Mary Washington. They dragged her on horseback all through the field that night. Took her away. The, the, Moses comes out of the house. He doesn't know what to do. He's frantic. He's screaming, help, help, help. He sees dead bodies everywhere. He sees this young woman being carried with a rope on horseback, being torn all through his field. Looks like she's holding a newborn baby in her hands. He sees dead bodies, the barns burning to the ground. He just doesn't know what to do. But his wife, Susan, was a very strong-willed, determined woman, very clear-headed, clear-minded. She knew exactly what to do. While the barn's still burning, she's out on horseback trying to find where these Quantrail Raiders live at. 
Within 48 hours, Susan set up a meeting with these raiders. She sent her husband, Moses, on the last horse they had left to meet up with these guys. He ended up on a crossroads in Kansas on a cold, snowy night. He sees four of the raiders standing 10 feet in front of him, holding torches in their hand. They have sacks on their face with the eyes cut out. Moses says to him, where's the woman? I'm here to pay for her life. We want to buy her back. They said, we killed her. But if you'll give us your horse, we'll give you her little baby. Moses is thinking, this is my last horse. This is all I have. But against everything he thought, he jumped off his horse. He handed them the reins. And they threw him a, a potato sack. He grabbed it in his arms. He opened it up and he could see the breath from a newborn baby blowing against the cold, dark night. He took the baby out of the sack, put the baby inside of his shirt underneath, right next to his skin to keep the baby warm. He walked all the way home. It took over 12 hours all through the night to get back through the snow. He finally ends up back in Diamond, Missouri. He collapses on the front porch. Susan runs out of the house. She grabs the baby out from underneath his shirt. She takes the baby and puts him by the fireplace. The baby's not moving, not crying. She's trying to massage the baby to get the blood flowing again, and nothing's happening. So Susan gets on her knees, and she prays this prayer out loud to God. She said, God, if you will let this baby live, we will raise him as our own child. We'll educate him in honor of his mother who helped to keep him alive. Just like that, the baby started to cry. They fed the child, they clothed the child, and that is how Moses and Susan Carver became the proud parents of George Washington Carver, who later grew up and poured into a young man named Henry Wallace, who grew up and took over this agricultural company that Norman Borlaug had set up. And Norman Borlaug, of course, became the man who saved the lives of two billion people, got a Nobel Peace Prize, and ABC's Person of the Week. But I think ABC's Person of the Week should go to Susan, a farmer's wife. Unless you know that, I'm just kidding, that's all I got. <laughs> I'm not asking you to save the lives of two billion people. I'm asking you to give away your horse. I'm asking you to give your horse to a ministry that could possibly end up saving the lives of two billion people. And you may not see it until you get to heaven. And you may not get the big reward on earth. You may not make ABC's person of the week, but wouldn't it be great to know one day you're looking down from heaven and you see all the fruit that's been produced because every gift matters. Luke 6:38, give and it will come back to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over will be poured into your life. You have no idea what your little gift can do and how it can affect the entire world. Amen. Amen. Amen.